you will turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 this morning as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans, we find ourselves in verses 19 and 20. You can find our text this morning on page 941 in the blue ESV Bible. The title of our sermon this morning is Every Mouth Stopped. And our key words for our worshipers in training are law, mouth, and knowledge. Now, all of us at some point in our lives have been victims of the pernicious disease known as foot in mouth. Now, quite unlike hand, foot, and mouth disease, which is highly contagious and passed from one person to the next, foot in mouth disease is self inflicted as an ailment. It tends to affect some people more than others although we can all attest to our own experiences. Putting your foot in your mouth, of course, is a phrase that is used to describe when a person makes a rather baffling comment. It's either embarrassing or tactless. It's when we make comments without giving attention to context or audience or how we might be perceived. And so when we do that, we embarrass ourselves or we needlessly or unintentionally offend or upset others. Every year since 1993, the Plain English Campaign presents the Foot in Mouth Award and focuses on the baffling comments of public figures like politicians and athletes and actors and actresses. In 2000, the award was presented to the clueless actress Alicia Silverstone, who said, quote, I think that clueless was very deep. I think it was deep in the way that it was very light. I think lightness has to come from a very deep place if it's true lightness. Thank you. In 2002, the actor Richard Gere took the top spot with his philosophical observation, I know who I am. No one else knows who I am. If I was a giraffe and somebody said I was a snake, I'd think, no, actually, I'm a giraffe. Deep insight. In 2006, the English model Naomi Campbell opined, I love England, especially the food. There's nothing I like more than a lovely bowl of pasta. And a year later, the English soccer manager, Steve McLaren, speaking of his player, Wayne Rooney, said, he is inexperienced, but he's experienced in terms of what he's been through. And then just four years ago, the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, secured the top prize, saying, Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a titanic success of it. Now, some of the best foot-in-mouth stories come from lawyers. Legal proceedings are often very stressful. They include long hours of recall of specific details. And, of course, the opposing counsel is doing their best to prove their case by questioning victims and witnesses, alleged criminals. I read a story of a lawyer who explained a case in which he was the prosecuting attorney and the defendants decided he wanted to represent himself instead of using the public defender. And the case was a residential burglary and one of the elderly neighbors saw the defendant running from the house when the crime was committed. 
And so instead of pleading guilty or no contest, the defendant insisted on going to trial. And so there before the judge and the jury, the first witness was the elderly neighbor. After the prosecution asked a series of questions, the defendant stood up for cross-examination of the witness. He walked up to her and he said, now when you saw this person running away, what did you see? And the witness said, you, I saw you running away. And the defendant turned to the judge and he said, your honor, I have no further questions. (laughs) Now, it's very easy for us to laugh at others and their silly gaffes and their foot-in-mouth moments, and all of us have them. But the reality is that one day, all of humanity will have their foot in their mouth. When all that we've said, when all that we've done will be revealed as we stand before God to give an account to Him. All of the things we said we would never do, but we did. All the ways that we've judged others for doing the things that we've ourse- we ourselves have done. All the things that we said that were lies or embellishments. All the things that we have sought to hide. All the ways we've portrayed ourselves to be different than we really are. All of the secret sins that have lain dormant in our hearts that we've known and we wouldn't, didn't want to have to deal with. All of it. All of it. As we stand before God... All of it will have a bright light shined on it, and it will expose us in our words and in our deeds, and in so doing, we won't have one, but we will have both of our feet in our mouths. Nothing to say. You see, we may embarrass ourselves by asking a lady when her babies do when she's not pregnant, or we may sing the wrong lyrics to a song that we always thought were right, But those are the things that we do from time to time in this life that we can laugh about at some point. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul brings this lengthy section to a conclusion by reminding us that one day every single mouth will be stopped and it will not be a laughing matter. The actions we take, the words we speak, The intentions of our hearts will all be revealed and we will be without excuse on the day of judgment. And anything we think we can say will only serve to make us look more foolish. The two verses we will see today are the grand summary of what Paul has has written thus far as he prepares us for the next movement of his letter. So we've said for several weeks now, the Apostle Paul is giving us the bad news as he drives us toward the good news. We need to know the bad is truly bad so that we can know how good the good truly is. And what we've seen is that the bad is far worse than we ever thought it was. You'll remember in chapter 1, he, he laid out his indictment against the Gentiles as they were seeking to go after the things of the world to fulfill their fleshly desires, worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, bowing down and giving their allegiance to idols. And eventually the Lord says that He was handing them over to their own desires. And then in chapter 2, He wanted to ensure the Jews that in all of their self-righteousness, that they too, that they too were under the judgment of God. 
Because in their pride, in their self-righteousness, in their Jewishness, they assumed that they were right before God because of their external conformity to the law as they saw it, and yet their hearts were far from Him. Their hearts were unchanged. Their hearts did not look to Christ. And then in chapter 3, at the beginning of the chapter, remember, he addressed, am I then saying that the Jews have no advantage? And he said, of course, I'm not saying that there's no advantage. They've had an advantage, but they've squandered their advantage because they were concerned with the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. They were concerned with all of the externals of life. They were concerned not about their hearts They were concerned with their ethnicity over their communion with God. And then last week we saw, are the Jews better off then because they're Jews? No, not at all. And as proof, Paul then turned to the Old Testament Scriptures and the Jews themselves, they they often pretended to give regard to those Scriptures. And so he cites multiple passages to prove that we are all desperately corrupt and unclean from the top of our head to the bottoms of our feet. And he showed us that in our own, in our depravity, we will follow after our most sinful nature and our tendencies and our wickedness. So Paul's message message thus far has been that we are all under sin, we are all unrighteous, we all have turned our own way and have rebelled against God. Jew and Gentile alike. We are in the same circumstances, with the same high thoughts of ourselves, with the indulgence of our flesh, with the worship of idols, with the suppression of truth, and it all results in vile thoughts, intentions, words, and actions. So this brings us to this place today where Paul shows us that we all have our foot in our mouth, and it is being made plain. And so let's read together, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." So from chapter 1 and verse 18, now all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20, the apostle has one great theme, and that great theme is that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here is the summary statement that is crucial to our understanding of what is about to come for Paul as he will begin to lay out the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so we get into this understanding of these verses, and the first thing that he shows us in the first part of verse 19 is that you are under the law of God. Look again, he writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now the New Testament will often refer to different things when referencing The law, sometimes it means the book of Moses, other times dealing directly with the Ten Commandments, still others dealing with all of the moral, civil, ceremonial law that is found throughout the Pentateuch. 
Sometimes it's more obvious than others what specifically they're addressing, but given the context of what Paul is writing, what he's been outlining here, it seems most fitting to understand that Paul is specifically addressing the moral law of God here, and and when we say that, we're talking, of course, of the Ten Commandments. So we have to ask, who are those who are under the law? Well, if you look back at verse 9, you see Paul writes, For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. Now, that includes all of us. We are included as Greeks or Gentiles. And the point that Paul is making is that every human being is under the law of God to some degree. That's what he has been laboring to show us, that there would be no judgment of sin unless one is under the pronouncement of the law, because where there is no law, there is no sin. And so what Paul did uh, tell us back in chapter 2 was that the law is made known to us because it is written on our hearts. Therefore, We are under the law of God, both Gentile and Jew, because we know the law, because it is within us. Now, whatever the law says, of course, it says to those who are lawbreakers. It's not theoretical. It's not as if Paul comes to this point and says, hypothetically, if you were a lawbreaker, this is what you would have to consider. Just so we're clear, Paul is writing to you and Paul is writing to me because we are lawbreakers. And remember, back in chapter 2, we saw that not only is it that we are lawbreakers in terms of how God will judge us, Paul wrote that God shows no partiality. Under God, we experience what true blind justice actually is. We want blind justice, we think, in our nation, unless it comes to us, but under God, truly, it is blind justice. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you look like, how much money you make, how big or small your house is, how much education you have, or any such thing. God shows no partiality in any way, and He judges all according to the same exact standard, and we all come up far short of that standard because His standard is perfect fulfillment of His law. And so all of us, therefore, are deserving of the anger and judgment of God. The entire human race. There are no exceptions to the demands of the law. And let's just think about this. Think of just two of the commandments. Think of the eighth and the ninth commandment, for example. I want you to imagine yourself standing in the courtroom of heaven... All, all the language Paul is using is, is legal language, and he's drawing this image for us. So you're standing there in the courtroom of heaven, and the judge's bench is before you. It towers over you, and the judge of all the earth is sitting there, and he's looking down at you as all of the charges are read out, one after the other after the other, and you get to the eighth commandment, and you think, okay, do not steal. I should be fine here. Do you think you're fine as it pertains to the Eighth Commandment? It seems basic enough, but we're all good Bible students, and we know the duties and protections of the law are far more extensive than just the plain reading of the words. 
So what is in the Eighth Commandment? Well, the Eighth Commandment also obligates us to keep the terms of contracts, to pay our bills, to pay our rent, to pay our tuition, to pay our taxes, to give and to lend freely and generously, to be moderate in our judgments, to use wisdom in creating wills, to exercise care in the use of money, to be frugal, to earn what we can, to save what we can, to give generously when we can. It protects private property. It protects ownership. It's to be a protection against the compulsory extraction of money and possessions or land from individuals. It is intended to further the wealth of others and our own. God forbids in this commandment to neglect the financial duties that we might have. He forbids robbery and kidnapping and receiving stolen goods or to engage in fraudulent dealings. We're forbidden to lie about the value of something or to use false weights and measures. We're forbidden to remove landmarks or to charge excessive interest or to abuse the marketplace or to take benefits we don't need or shouldn't have or to envy the prosperity of the rich. And and as you start to think through these matters, the Lord reveals all of the ways which you have fallen short of just this one commandment. And every single charge of the Eighth Commandment is falling on you. It's burying you. You can just hear it falling. Every charge, boom, boom, coming down from the judge, landing on you, adding to an ever-increasing pile under which we are buried under the law of God. We're under the law. We're being buried by it. And then... Just when we think we've had enough, he turns to the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness. Do not lie. Okay, you think, I'm pretty honest. I don't go around making a habit of lying about things. But the ninth commandment means that your yes is always yes. Your no is always no, even to your own hurt. You promote the truth in all of your relationships. You preserve the good name of your neighbors. You speak sincerely and freely and clearly. You esteem others. You rejoice in another's good reputation. You freely acknowledge the good works of others. You grieve over gossip and slander and flattery. You keep promises. You don't denigrate leaders. You don't make false promises. And in the midst of this, God forbids everything that prejudices the truth, every false evidence, every bribing of witnesses, every every pleading for evil causes, every unjust sentence, every time we call evil good and good evil, every time we participate in the rewarding of an evildoer. He prohibits forgery and concealing the truth and undue silence in the midst of a just cause or holding peace when justice is required or speaking maliciously or lying or slandering or backbiting or whispering or reviling or using harsh words or boasting or being self-righteous, denying the gifts of God, excusing the sins of man and rejoicing at the disgrace of others." And the law continues to fall like rain. 
one charge after another, after another, after another. We have done all of these things, and it's falling on us. It's burying us. This is all about us. We have all fallen short. This is who we are before God. This is who we are in our corruption, in our sin, in our depravity. And the law keeps falling down. The charges come on us and they bury us. And the law is not relenting. The law is unbending. The law is unbearable. And it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And we feel the weight that is more and more and more. And it is crushing us. It falls. And there's no escape because we are all guilty under the law of God. What peace we would have if we all kept just these two commandments alone. Think of the peace. No fear of dark alleys. We would have empty jails. Our children, we would know we're safe. Our elderly would be safe. We could live with our doors unlocked. What a blessing. But we know even ourselves that we cannot keep the law, so we should never have an expectation that anyone else will either. They are under the law, we are under the law, and it is crushing all of us under its weight because the law has no capacity to provide us with an escape. So what is the result of that? Well, Paul shows us, secondly, that your mouth will be stopped by the law of God. He says that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. When the charges fall on you and you know that for every one of them the verdict is guilty, 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 what can you say? Are you going to say, well, I I didn't know. I I didn't mean it that way. Lord, you're kind of missing the context of how that went down. God forbid you might say, that's not fair. Is that how we will respond? You must give an answer to the God who created you. You are accountable to Him, but you have no excuse. You have no argument against your crime. From beginning to end, throughout the trial, you have nothing to say. No plea, nothing to appeal to, no defense, and there is no miscarriage of justice here. You will be standing before justice, awaiting your sentence, and the commandments will condemn, and all mouths will be stopped. We might try to speak, but nothing will come out because our foot will be in our mouth. The only response, the only possible response we could have would be like old Job. As he wallowed in his self-pity and grew more and more impatient with his circumstances, the Lord brought him to the end of himself and it was there that he said he was guilty under the law of God and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. The purpose of the law of God 
is to stop our mouths, that we would place our hands over our lips and be held accountable for our words and our thoughts and our actions before God. The conviction of sin's power humbles us and it makes us aware of our weakness and our guilt. There is no way any of us can honestly say, I am not guilty. But rather, all we could possibly say is, God, be merciful. I wonder, friend, have you reached this place in your pilgrimage? Has this conviction been laid on your heart that we can in no way meet the law's demands and if we are ever to be saved, it's not by our law-keeping. We need another righteousness because our righteousness is pitiful. We need another power because all we really have is weakness. We need a true atonement because all that we can offer is tainted. We are not all equally sinful, but all sinners are under the dominion of sin. And once all of the charges are named, the judge will ask, do you have anything to say in your own defense? And your response silence. No excuse, no explanation. No appeal. Friends, we may not like who we are, but silence is the first step in our salvation. It is then for the first time in our lives that we are finally listening to what God has to say to us. Maybe your mouth has yet to be stopped. Maybe you're saying, yes, but... But you know that at this very moment, hell is filled with people who simply will not stop talking. They won't be quiet long enough to receive the divine diagnosis from heaven. And it's only when you finally stop talking that the truth comes crashing through your door, breaking the hinges and locks, and at that, the very chains that have locked you up have been snapped and it knocks you to the floor, and when you lie there, you are desperate and in need of rescue. But as long as you try to defend yourself, you cannot know true salvation. Friend, please stop talking and start listening to what God has said to you. You cannot go on fighting this, this idea that you don't need forgiveness and grace and mercy from God. You know that you do because you know that you're guilty. Brothers and sisters, this is an important reminder to us that we have no reason to be afraid of those who think they know better than God. They may laugh, they may scoff, they may mock They may make their intelligence and their learning to stand above God, but don't fear those voices because what they are doing is seeking to portray themselves and they want to be understood as voices of infinite wisdom, but they will be revealed to be more finite than they ever thought possible. You need not fear the man or the woman who seems to have an answer for everything. 
You need not fear the man or the woman who assumes they have the universe all figured out and they seek to explain it through a series of implausible and unprovable events. Don't be afraid of being talked down to. Don't be afraid of being intellectually juked by the wise of the world. Because before God, apart from Christ, their mouth will be stopped and they will have nothing to say. So you see, the law does not just silence those of us who already know the law or make claim to delight in the law or who preach and teach the law. Notice, Paul writes, the whole world. We are all accountable whether we acknowledge it or not. And we are going to stand in silence. And so Paul shows us lastly what we want to hope in, the things we want to bank on to get us to God, to move us beyond this life to the next, that what it is that we depend on so often is absolutely useless. He shows us in verse 20 that you cannot be justified through works of the law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the law is not given to us that in observing it, we can be declared righteous because we are all sinful. The law is not a checklist we keep. The law is a benchmark that we fail. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, Paul writes. Whenever someone hears or reads God's law, however loyal, however kind, however thoughtful, however generous or loving they are, their response can only be, I am a sinner. I have nothing to say to God. No defense to offer or to make. I am in desperate trouble. This is a bleak truth, isn't it? Not a lot of rainbows and butterflies this morning, but hard truth is better than sweet deceit, is it not? The great mathematician, philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote, nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine, yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. And so our silent mouths are a spiritual posture. It is the condition of the person who knows that they have not the capacity to save themselves. Now, please notice, Paul is not complaining about the principle that the law convicts. He thanks God for the law. He has no hang-ups with the law. He delights in the law. He loves the law. Paul's hang-up is with the human heart. When we think we're obedient to the law and we think we can stroll out before God, before the judgment bench, and receive His smile and and be accepted into heaven because we think we are all right, because we didn't tell too many lies or we didn't get too angry at too many people or we didn't steal too much from our employer of their time or their resources. No, friends, again, the standard is God's law. You cannot depend on being a nice person. I know a lot of nice people. I know a lot of nice non-Christians who are nicer than a lot of the Christians I know. 
and yet lest they are justified, their niceness will get them the same verdict as everyone else, guilty. And so why do you think we need a Savior to come from heaven to live in obscurity? He came to fulfill all righteousness because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. But while Jesus became man, He's not entirely like us, is He? That's good news. When it comes to the law, Jesus didn't do the negatives of the law. Jesus did do the positives of the law. Jesus did everything that God requires, and He did it all perfectly. And so, friend, if you do not know Christ, I want you to know that you and I are just as guilty before the judge. But the difference between you and any Christian is that as a Christian stands before the judge, that very same judge will also be our advocate and our mediator and the jury and our defense attorney. Even more amazing, He will take the penalty of our sin. He is our sacrifice. And so you see, it's not as if God says, you are guilty, but I'm going to let this one slide. You're kind of a nice person. I'm going to let you in. No, there is no slide. All sin, every single sin is under the judgment of God. And either you will pay the penalty for every single one of your sins for eternity, or Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sin on the cross as He gave His body and His blood for you. You see, if your niceness was enough to get you into heaven, there would be no need for Jesus' death. Otherwise, what is the verdict on your life? Guilty? What is the sentence? Eternal death. And you, again, stand with nothing to say. So you see, the problem is not the law. The problem is that we are all lawbreakers. The law cannot save, the law cannot acquit, the law cannot justify. All the law can do is show us that we are guilty and point us to Christ. It brings a knowledge of sin. The most offensive habits and patterns in our lives, others may see, they may point out to us, and we'll maybe brush them off. Now, you don't understand. It's not what you think. It's not what it seems like. We justify it in our minds, don't we? We pretend things are not real. But under the law, you are exposed. Your true nature is revealed, and you realize the worst advice that has ever been given to anyone in this world is that we should look within ourselves to find a hero inside. Yes, you need a hero. I need a hero. But that hero is not in here. The only hero that will truly do anything for us is Jesus Christ. Now, friend, maybe this morning you're feeling crushed by the weight of God's law. That law is written on your heart, and when it is brought up, when it is made known, 
when it is made evident, when it is highlighted before you, the reason God has written it on your heart is that you would feel the conviction, that you would feel the weight of it, that you would feel the true sense that there is no way, no how, that you will ever be able to live up to that standard. And yet, and yet God does not leave us there. He does not leave us crushed under the weight of the law, unable to move, unable to speak. God has shown us in His Word that by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ, the weight of the law can be lifted and we can walk free. How do we get that faith? By God's grace, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, come to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Why can Jesus offer us rest? Because he lived the life that we couldn't live. He fulfilled the law because he died the death that we deserve because we broke the law. Because he was raised from the dead and he conquered death, he conquered sin. Will your sins be punished in Christ? If you come to Him by faith, yes, they will. They're not going unpunished. But Jesus took upon Himself the full weight of the wrath of God for His people that we might walk free. That we might know that even though we are indeed guilty, that we can hear those words, not guilty. I declare you are not guilty not because of you, but because of Christ. You see, my friend, it is time that you get right with God and that you come to Christ by faith and putting your hope and your trust in what He has accomplished that you might live. Will you come to Christ? Will you trust in His law-keeping? Will you trust that His death was sufficient for you? Brothers and sisters, let us be reminded afresh this morning the great truths of Scripture that we should spend far less time talking and far more time listening to the wisdom of God's Word. We need our mouths to be stopped more often. And by God's grace, when we stand before the judge at His bench, we need not stare back without a word when He says, what's your plea? We actually do have a plea, don't we? We will come before God with empty hands and we have nothing to offer, but we will say, I am here just as I am without one plea, but that the blood of Jesus was shed for me. That's it, friend. Brothers and sisters, that's it. One plea, one boast. We will open our mouths to utter the blood of Jesus Christ. And even though we know every count against us is true, the judge will say on the basis of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, you are declared not guilty. His righteousness counts as your righteousness. His law-keeping counts as your law-keeping. His death counts as your death. And now with Him you shall forever dwell in everlasting loving communion. And when you realize how amazing and how undeserved this gift from God is, 
You're no longer silent because of your guilt, but you're speechless because you're humbled by God's mercy and grace and love. What a great gift God has given to us because He so loved the world that He gave His Son that we might live with Him forever and ever.